This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blah! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you. Join us now at patreon.com slash missionlog to learn more about how you can support Mission Log directly and to join our ever-growing and amazing Discord community. That's patreon.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 420, Covenant. Welcome, children, to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, and we have faith in each other, and in you, dear followers, that we will examine it for its moral lessons, deeper meanings, and thought-provoking messages. This week, Covenant, the one where... uh, Hang on, let me check my notes. Uh... Okay, okay, I've got it. Goldicott becomes a cult leader. Yeah, that tracks. Norman, why don't you tell people where to find us, and I'll come right back with trivia. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, here's John Champion with your trivia. All right, trivia on today's episode, Covenant. It was written by Rene Echeverria. And while Rene gets the story and teleplay credit in one it was a group effort, as always. Uh, at the top, you had Iris Stephen Bear and others who felt the need to refocus the DS9 story on Dakot as the bad guy, since we had spent a lot of time away from him since the end of the last season. You also had David Weddle, who was something of an expert on cults from his journalism background. That was part of his beat, as it were. And if we want to talk specifics, uh, there was another big influence on this story. Not quite two years prior to this episode's original air date, the Heaven's Gate cult committed mass suicide in San Diego, California. They believed that they were to shed their corporeal bodies in order to join an alien spacecraft. Much has been covered about them in the years since, including the excellent 2020 HBO documentary Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults. 
This episode was directed by John Kretschmer, a returning name to the director's chair. John had many genre credits like Sequest, DSV, Xena, and Buffy, uh, but we have only seen one other DS9 episode from him. That was A Simple Investigation. This is it for his DS9 contributions, all two of them, and he will be back for just two episodes of Voyager. How about that baby, folks? Well, there are a lot of laws governing how long children can be on set and even more restrictions about the makeup that can be applied to them. The production crew on DS9 tried to get away with an animatronic half-Cardassian, half-Bajoran baby, and it looked terrible. It just did not work. So there you had all the actors assembled and Mark Alimo doing his thing, trying to sell the scene. And they had to reshoot all of it. All those scenes with the baby had to be reshot. And they only used very brief images of a real baby with some modified makeup appliances to get those shots. Now, let's talk about our guest stars. Of course, as just mentioned, front and center, we have Mark Alimo back as Gold Ducat. In his cadre, there are a number of Bajoran followers. We meet the happy couple. Benyon and Mika, played by Jason Leland Adams and Maureen Flanagan, respectively. Jason is from Los Angeles, though he formed a Shakespeare company in Washington, D.C. His on-screen work is mostly in TV guest roles, though he had a significant recurring role on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. As Mika, Maureen started out in the mid-80s in small TV roles and landed a lead in a sci-fi sitcom called Out of This World co-starring the late Donna Pascal and Burt Reynolds. A number of TV roles followed, including recurring spots on 7th Heaven, 90210, and Starved. Finally, as Vedic Fala, we have Norman Parker. While this episode falls toward the end of Norman's on-screen credits, he has an impressive resume in both TV and feature films. Go all the way back to Dark Shadows in the late 60s, where he has a handful of credits there, other TV soap opera roles followed. Then in the 80s and 90s, you'll find him in roles in Bonfire of the Vanities, Turk 182, and Prince of the City. This is Norman's only Star Trek appearance. This story sounds like a cult classic in the making. Let's see how it goes. Prologue. At Quark's bar, Dax, Bashir, and Odo wait for Kira to return from a Bajoran religious service. When she shows up, she's inspired by the message she just heard about forgiving one's enemies. And Odo opines that he wishes he shared her faith just so he could attend services with her. Aww. Later, Kira is visited in her quarters by an old friend, a mentor, really, Vedic Fala. They talk about his spiritual journey and how he was there for her when young Nerys was in the camps on Bajor. He offers her a gift, a little stone that she puts in her hand, and when it starts glowing, Kira finds herself transported all the way to Empok Nor. She's surrounded by Bajorans wearing red armbands, the sign of members of a Pa-Wraith cult, and she demands to know why she's been taken here. Only the Master can answer that question, and the Master turns out to be Gold Ducat. Act 1. Oh, hello, Ducat. 
is a tense reunion. Understandably so. Ducat tries to make his case. He was so touched by his experience with the paw race. You remember, uh, back when he snorted one and tried to use its power to close up the wormhole? Oh, oh, and he killed Jadzia too? Well, he was so touched that now he sees the paw race as the rightful gods of Bejor, cast out of the celestial temple by the prophets. He's full of love. Love for the Bajoran people, not exactly atoning for the sins of being part of the occupying force of Bajor, but he does say that he was walking the path laid out by the prophets, the same prophets who abandoned Kira and every other Bajoran. And he's sorry about Jadzia. Now he's on a path to listen to the Pa Wraith's plans for him, for Bajor, and to attain their rightful place, and he wants Kira to be there at his side. Act 2. On DS9, the crew realize in short order that Kira is missing, beamed away by a transporter that had a long range and the assist of a special transponder. They have no idea where she could be. On Impact Nor, Vedic Fala reveals to Kira that he's been a member of the Paw Wraith cult for a long time, long before Dukat came on the scene. He feels that the Paw Race were able to wash Dukat clean of his sins, and it's up to people like Kira to learn the lesson of forgiveness. Even as she pushes back that Dukat is using this opportunity to manipulate him and others, Fala insists that they are building a community and wants to show her around. There's nothing to fear. The cult members are working hard, getting things on Impaknor livable. Kira is free to walk around, just not free to leave. She meets Mika, who is pregnant with her and her husband Benyon's child, a child sanctioned by the master, Dukat, since everyone else is committed to celibacy unless the master deems otherwise. When Kira meets Benyon, he's a bit defensive right off the bat, telling Kira that he doesn't need her approval, and if she can't accept the Pa Wraiths, then it's really her loss. He just gets back to working on a painting of happy Bajorans smiling while surrounding their spiritual master. Time later for a religious ceremony on the station, the members pray under the leadership of Dukat, and Kira sees an opening, a holstered weapon on one of the attendees. She grabs it, points it at Dukat, but when she does, the cult members, including Fala, stand in front of their leader to protect him. The only way to stop Dukat would be to kill all of them. And when Kira turns to leave, she's knocked unconscious from behind. And Dukat whispers, Now do you understand how much they love me? Act 3. When Kira is conscious again, she finds Dukat caring for her, bringing her food as well, which she refuses. The more she accuses him of being a fraud, the more Dukat insists he loves these people. Even during the occupation, he wanted their approval, their love, and look at him now. He's in a station in charge of Bajorans, and they really do love him. Now it just comes to Kira. She's his biggest challenge, and if he can win her over, he can win over any Bajoran, just as the Pa Wraiths want. But their conversation is interrupted with the joyous news that Benyon and Mika's child is due now. The first child born in their community. Dukat is full of graciousness and praise for the happy parents-to-be. When Mika is brought into the infirmary, where the others are gathered, the baby is wrapped in a blanket. Benyon is the first to look, and their baby is definitely not full Bajoran like them. 
In fact, there's a distinctively gray shade to its skin and lightly reptilian features. The child is half Cardassian. Benyon and Mika look uneasy, but keep their thoughts to themselves. Ducat wastes no time, lifting up the baby for all to see, and he praises this momentous day where the Pa race have blessed them with this symbol of the covenant between Ducat and his followers. All assembled, with the exception of Kira, Benyon, and Mika, looks overjoyed with the blessing and begin to pray to their gods. Act 4. Alone, Kira confronts Vedic Fala with what just happened. It's so obvious that Dukat is playing them, but Fala just insists that he has faith, and clearly she does not. Well, if there's nothing to worry about, then surely Fala would be okay with Kira asking a few questions of the happy couple? Certainly. Benyon is still working on his painting of Dukat and his Bajoran followers. There's a baby in there, too, though Kira points out if he had known, he could have made it half Cardassian. Then she asks, did he ever pray with Dukat alone? And what about Mika? Did she pray with Dukat alone? That conversation is over, and Kira goes off to find Mika with Fala in tow. Before they can find her, though, Mika has a secret meeting with Dukat in one of the station's airlocks. She says she didn't know, or at least that she hoped the baby wasn't his. Dukat apologizes for being weak and getting her into this position. Nobody else knows, though. Even Benyon wants to believe the miracle, but Mika isn't sure she can keep the truth from him forever. Dukat says not to worry. Just wait until he's gone, then go back to her quarters. But when he leaves, he closes the door of the airlock and opens the outer hatch. Air whooshes out, dragging Mika to the hatch, and then when the atmosphere is gone, she drops to the floor. Once Dukat is gone, Kira and Fala are almost too late, they bring her to the infirmary, where she will eventually make a full recovery. But Kira lashes out at Dukat, knowing that he tried to kill her and knowing that Mika won't protect him anymore. Dukat merely instructs his followers to take Kira back to her quarters for a rest. And later that night, Dukat prays, alone, to his gods, asking for forgiveness and a way out to protect the covenant he has with the Pa Wraith's children. The gong sounds for services at this odd hour, and Dukat shares his vision with his followers. It will be the last vision from their gods, instruction that they should all gather at the beginning of the new day to shed their corporeal bodies to join the wraiths in their battle to take the celestial temple. The followers begin to pray, and Kira, hearing this over the station comms system, slams her hand on their doors in frustration. Act 5 Dukat arrives at Kira's quarters to let her know that he sent a message to DS9 for her to be picked up in a day or two. Meanwhile, he and his followers will take Promazine, an obsidian-ordered drug that will kill him and all the others and reduce their bodies to dust. At the appointed hour, the believers gather in their temple, and the Promazine pills are distributed even to Benyon and the baby. Kira breaks out of her quarters in time to catch Dukat addressing his audience with promises of their transition to the Pa race. He encourages them to not be afraid, but Kira leaps down from the higher level, knocking Dukat, his pills, and the rest of the Promazine in a tray to the ground. He takes a moment to recover, but Kira saw what happened. Dukat dropped his own pill, and ever-loyal Fala handed him another, one that Dukat is hesitant to take. 
Then Kira calls him out. Why not take it? Or was his different? Did he have no intention of dying with his followers? Everyone turns on him, and a disheveled Ducat beams out to avoid the wrath of an angry mob. They'll live to see another day, except in the corner, a disillusioned Fala pops one of the promazine in his mouth before Akira can get to him. As she holds him and asks why, he only says, Faith, Nerys, faith. The Defiant has picked up Kira and the survivors. As Odo asks about Kira's experience, he's under the impression that Dukat was acting in his own self-interest, as ever, but Kira is convinced that Dukat believes, and that makes him as dangerous as ever. The End Fantastic synopsis, John. And as much as I would love to get into our, uh, you know, repartee mm-hmm. as Money Penny and 007 usually do, yes. you being 007, of course, yeah, whatever, Penny. <laughs> I say we jump right in because we have a lot to talk about. So let's start off with some observations. I say we do. First, most important question on Quark's bar. Is Romulan ale just that easy to get on DS9? Is that, is that just a thing now that a few years later? Because, look, I remember uh, Kirk. I remember McCoy. I remember everybody saying, look, uh, Romulan ale can't get it. It's illegal. But on DS9, you can just get it, even if it's DS9 Quark, is under Federation control, you know? It's Quark, man. Okay. Quark can do Right. He can do the things. And, and, and Bashir can partake. <laughs> of course he can. Yeah, yeah. For medicinal purposes. We're, yes, of course. there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, you and I were talking offline saying that this is an episode where you could just pick apart each and every line of dialogue. And there are places that will do that. Uh, but I, I will do that with a question here at first because Odo says, perhaps if I had an orb experience. And then Kira says, no, no, it doesn't work like that. Faith has to come first. Does it, though? Because apparently you can just go up to an orb and then, boom, it happens. <laughs> so, yeah. I think that orbs have their own rules. First shot across the bow scored <laughs> by Mr. Champion. Yes, yes. To be continued. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though. Does Deep Space Nine scan for weapons or unknown technology or things of that nature before letting people get on the station? Because... That's a problem, right? Yeah. Yeah, there there are a couple of security lapses that we might be able to pick apart here. That would be one, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, now, I, I will say that once she gets over to Empak Nor, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I love that as a production, they just commit to the idea that Impact Nor is the same as DS9, but the lights are off, and it's sitting at an angle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. Like, 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 I totally get it. It's an artistic decision. It It tells us, the audience, without telling us that we're in a different place. But it's space, and it doesn't matter what angle. Yeah, but anyway, I kid, I kid. John, in space, no one can hear you lean. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, that's so good. TM. That might be a T-shirt. But I will say that walking around the dilapidated Impacnor, uh, as the members try to you know pull it together and make it livable, it just there was something great about that short scene. It reminds me of any number of kind of utopia gone bad stories, you know, people mm-hmm. working hard to to get the lights back on and they have those little hand warmers around. And um, I've mentioned it before on Mission Log, how I have a soft spot in my heart for a, a TV miniseries called Goliath the Waits about an ocean liner wreck whose survivors devolve into this, well, cult of personality. <laughs> they have to make do with all the junk left over on the ship. It just immediately made me think of that, and uh, and I kind of loved it for that. 
So easily, like one of the most uh, establishing moments for, you know, to point out that this is a cult, mm-hmm. red armbands, because red armbands are bad historically. Yes. Yes, they are. And, many, and, many of us know this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, uh, since I just mentioned Goliath the Weights, the bad guys on that security team had black armbands. So going oh, with the theme. Yeah. So the armband thing, right? Yep. I, but I kind of wish that they weren't used specifically on Impact Nor because all of a sudden you already have this preconceived packaged notion that red armbands equal cult equal your the colorization of how you see these people automatically oh, before you can actually yeah. create the opinion for yourself. I, I wish they were a little bit more ambiguous about that so that you could feel a little bit more for these characters. Interesting. As opposed to, oh, you're wearing an armband, therefore you must be bad. That, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, right? I agree. Speaking of people being bad and uh, <laughs> many, many <laughs> things that leap out right away, the old, uh, the old control someone's sexuality and you control them completely. Uh, Ducat definitely pulling this right out of any number of cult how-to books, you know, uh, cults for dummies. He got that right out of that book. And, and I mentioned it before, the, those uh, Bajoran hand warmers, which, which have a payoff because uh, Kira's using that heater to uh, blow open her door. I love just a weird, fun little detail. They don't make a big thing out of it. They're just there. I'd, I'd kind of like to have one of those mm-hmm. if one of those props is for sale at some point. And, oh, man, uh, speaking of so many good lines, and we'll come back to so many of them, what Kira says to Binion. I've always found that when people try to convince others of their faith, it's really because uh, they're trying to convince themselves. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Oh, Pa Wraith. I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, Prophets. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, uh, by the way, am I – well, look, I know the answer. Am I a sick and twisted individual? Yes, because I kind of want that mural that Binion is painting. I just hmm. – I, I, I want a copy of that. Yeah. Was it just me or did anyone else get kind of like – a foreshadowing Last Supper vibe from that painting. Ooh. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I, I kind of get that. Um, well, and funny, you know, offline, we were talking about V, uh, the Kenneth Johnson miniseries from 1983. And I'm thinking about all that propaganda art of the visitors. Right. And I felt like mm-hmm. this was very much propaganda art with Ducat, you know, all, you know, kind of in the light shining and all those happy, smiling faces around him. Twisted stuff. Yeah. Therefore, I like exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, I like it. I know what I'm getting you for Christmas. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, Kira being kind of like the, the tactical colonel, soldier, military person that she is, that she didn't clear the blind spot behind her when she pulled that phaser from the crowd. Yeah. Basically letting those people behind her get the drop on her. Clearing yeah. the room. Right. Right. That's a good point. I mean, point. sure. It's a plot point, but I'm just like, she is. She knows how to get in and out of a secure room and to secure her own safety. So, you're in the middle of a room. Yeah, she's you know? she's better than that. Um, I think so. While we're doling out advice, I will dole out another piece of advice: don't have a tense personal encounter in an airlock. Right. That's never a good idea. It will not go well for at least. At least one person in that party. Could be more, depending. Yeah. So I loved how you brought up the trivia about um, the baby or an infant uh, having like a, a set certain amount of time with prosthetics and being on set. Yes. But, oh. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Or was it a girl? I don't, we, well, don't know. I, we don't know. Do we? we don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, they just uh, had a baby of some mm-hmm. form and stuck a few little prosthetics on him or her. Yeah. And, and makeup. Yeah, and makeup. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah just a little, little gray pallor there. Yeah. Yeah. Storytelling or narrative standpoint, since we're kind of like the fly on, on the wall as the audience, was Dukat's prayer to the Pa Wraith, in fact, sincere? Because mm-hmm. if we are a fly on the wall, that means that we're watching him in real time pray in real time. Yeah. How does that color your, basically, the rest of how you view the rest of the episode? Yeah. That that is a great question, and and honestly, I you know we may never resolve that, but I, I felt like it was definitely a choice to have him alone praying. Could it simply be that he is still acting in you know total self service, but he's maybe reaching? He's hoping for inspiration. He's hoping that if well, he knows that the power race are real whether or not they are gods, uh, but could they in fact get him out of this and dispatch with his uh, brainwashed followers? Don't know. But yeah, that that is, there is something about that scene with him being alone. He's not doing it for show. Um, and then that kind of leads us to that moment with Odo and Kira at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So rule of thumb here, folks. If ever you're you're planning on taking um, or planning to take a fake poison tablet, make sure you have a backup because oh, reasons. Yeah. yeah. Right? Oh, that You is- never know when it, you know, this is like a trope in Hollywood or, or these kind of scenes where it kind of drives me nuts. You're like the only, you know, the only uh, uh, placebo that you have is the one that you lose, obviously. Right? So. One in each pocket. It's a good plan. If we get to the end of this show and Dukat discovers he's been worshipping the Impalumperates, won't he be embarrassed? We will get right back to Covenant, but first a word from us to all of you, our followers on Patreon and hopefully soon-to-be followers on Patreon at patreon.com slash missionlog. Norman, what's happening over at Patreon? So we do have a covenant of sorts on Patreon, and that is our Discord community. One of the great things that has just has, you know, really matured and evolved over the course of promoting Patreon is this great Discord community where so many of our subscribers have just shared so many fantastic loves of different passions, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Babylon 5, Stargate, etc., etc., food, travel, yes. convention yes. plans. The great thing about all of this is that you have so many people that have never met before that are coming together in a community, sometimes on live chat, definitely on chat text, in all the different threads, and just building these fantastic relationships. That is the the real success, I think, of Patreon and our Discord. So there's so much happening at the Mission Log Patreon. Even if you're not a part of Discord, but you should be, you get early access to our shows every week, the unedited, unexpurgated recording sessions. You get video of those shows. Uh, you get, of course, the swag that uh, is exclusive to our Patreon members. And uh, before you join us over there at patreon.com slash mission log, I do want to give a shout out to some of our newest members and say a big personal thank you to Joanna Shashir. Helen, 
Kareem, Audrey, Ian, John Macy, who had the pleasure of meeting at STLV in person. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. And I cannot wait to be engaged in a conversation with you in our Discord and in our live feedback sessions that we do every week. All right, Norman, a lot to unpack in this episode. I don't know how we'll do it all. Maybe we won't. Maybe we will. But let's start with the teaser. Because right away in the teaser of this episode, Kira talks about how the services that she just attended were so moving about forgiving the people who have wronged you. That's a good lesson. That's a very good lesson. Does she really ever internalize that? Um, is that a is that an on brand thing for Akira, or is it one of those things where you know we hear the lesson, we agree with it, and then we don't exactly put it into action? And I say we because I mean all of us all the time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that the tough thing with Kira is that you know she's being used as the analog of somebody who understands her faith and obviously draws a lot of strength from it. But at the same time, though, she's only Bajoran or Bajoran, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. Goldicott would say. But yes. you can only take your faith to a certain limit before it starts colliding with the reality of your life. You know, so yeah. it's great to live by a certain standard, but there's the reality of living to that standard. And this is where faith and reality meet. And I think that that's where we are with Kira. Yeah, uh, that that's uh, a good point because she's presented with all these opportunities to forgive. And of course, Dukat is trying to push her to forgive. It is self-serving. Of course, he wants her on his side for whatever twisted reasons he has. And there's a lot of twisted motivational reasoning behind everything that he does. Uh, but that is clearly a bridge too far and, you know, for good reason on her part. Um now, I do want to bring up something that we talked about the last time we really got into the paw race, something that you brought up that I thought was so interesting and, and such a good observation. When it comes to the paw race versus the prophets, we don't know if they're the good guys or the bad guys. We're just taking it on, oh, what's the word? Faith. Or red armbands. The, the, yes. <laughs> well, that, that's our new tip-off. We're taking it on faith that the good guys are worshiping the correct powerful, non-corporeal aliens. And now it gets even murkier because in this episode, you've got good Bajorans just trying to live their lives, taken in by someone who is slash was a bad guy to them. And at that point, you know, the paw race still just become almost like an abstract concept there mm-hmm. because their their worship is misplaced in Dukat. They can obviously justify whatever they want to by invoking the names of the paw race, but they can twist it to say, well, the paw race only want what is good for Bejor, and what is good for Bejor is what the paw race want. Right. It's a totally closed circular system that they mm-hmm. have. And and to your point, there isn't really any way – nobody has sat down with either the Pares or the prophets and said, now what do you want for Bejor? Now what do you want for Bejor? Now which one is actually the right course of action that we as independent thinking Bejorans could ask for? And that's the real struggle here is that the people that that worship both sides, either the prophets or the Pares, they aren't they aren't given the choice. Right, those choices right. are made either for them or at that moment when they are younger. Say, like you know, what what religion are you going to choose? Well, obviously the prophets, because you know my grandparents, 
They mm-hmm. believed in the prophets. My parents believe in the prophets. They chose for me to believe the prophets. Uh, this is kind of like a, a roundabout way of saying that sometimes faith isn't your choice. It's chosen for you. I want to put something out on paper, like literally people like listening to this, get a piece of paper, get a pen mm-hmm. or pencil and ask yourself this question. Is there a fundamental difference between Ducat asking his chosen ones to sacrifice themselves at the end to become these holy warriors against the prophets versus Cisco asking the greatest ask of all time and the same ask that Ducat did of asking his crew to sacrifice themselves in the wormhole, mm. one ship versus the entire Dominion fleet that was in the wormhole. What difference is there between those two asks? Because they're... Dakot and Dakot and Cisco are both emissaries of their respective faiths. They yeah. both are the chosen ones, whether or not they chose it or was thrust upon them. Yeah. Their people are the ones that have to follow the instruction of their emissaries. Those emissaries are therefore choosing what they believe is the right course of action, even if it ends up in the deaths of their people who have not chosen those fates for themselves. That is a really good question, and I can't wait to see the responses we get to that. If yeah. you don't believe what I'm saying, rewatch Sacrifice of Angels at the end. Nobody yeah. asked any of the crew on the Defiant whether or not they wanted to suicidally run up against an Adonian fleet and sacrifice mm-hmm. themselves. The difference between Dukat and Cisco is that Cisco is also a commander, so the people on his ship have to obey him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Right. Precisely. Let's talk about some more of that dialogue because there is a, a bit that just – well, there were so many that, that jumped right out to me. But there was another one that jumped out to me. And that is uh, early on in Act 1 when Dukat challenges Kira. Have you ever asked yourself why the prophets let your people suffer? And she very uh, reflexively says – the prophets have a plan for us. And then Dukat says, even as you speak those words, you must know how hollow they sound. This is one of those places where I have to say that Dukat is not wrong, uh, because it is a kind of twisted logic that allows you to say that, well, whatever the outcome is, or whatever the journey to that outcome is, whether it is full of suffering or whether there's no suffering, I can say that that was the will of those that I worship, that that was the will of those gods. And either way, I just have to put the interpretation. I have to give them the benefit of the doubt, no matter what. So if it's a failure, that's what they wanted. If it's a success, that's what they wanted. And to me, that is one of the most twisted pieces of using that faith as part of the argument. So the only way that I could really wrap my brain around how to put this in, in the context of which is worth discussing at an intellectual level and not an emotional level. So mm-hmm. I went to the dictionary and I looked up the differences between what is a religion and what mm-hmm. is a cult. And this oh. is from the Merriam-Webster online dictionary. So a religion is the service and worship of a god or the supernatural and commitment to devotion to religious faith or observance. A cult is a religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious. Spurious meaning not being what it purports to be, false or fake. So what (laughs) makes a religion true and what makes a cult untrue? Who dictates those specific terms? Since neither a source of religion or a cult can be proven as being factual or provable, then how can one be spurious and not the other? They either have to both be 
credible or both be spurious. So to put it in the context of the Bajoran faith, when the prophets were first worshipped by their original followers, was it a cult? Was it spurious? <laughs> and if not, why not? What makes the unprovable believable? And let's take this analysis one step further. By the definitions, only difference between cultism and religion is size. At one time, Christianity only had 12 apostles following That's the teachings cult, of friend. Jesus. Yeah. To the Jews and the Romans, this must have been a cult yeah. based on the strict definition. So this is where my problem lies with the argument of this episode. I am so glad that you brought that up in exactly the way that you did, because I, I, I had a similar train of thought here, and I, I boiled it down into a, a couple of different lines here. And, and really, you know, it comes back to Dukat. And, and to me, the most interesting thing in this entire episode, or, or in any cult story that you're telling, I, to me, it comes down to just a handful of questions. And, you know, the first one is, why does anyone join a cult? Because nobody ever thinks that they've joined a cult. And to be fair, going on your definition, which I, I think is perfectly accurate, uh, the use of the word cult is incredibly loaded because it's usually the word that a big religion slaps on a smaller religion. Exactly. And there is no single defining attribute. So I think here we're using it kind of colloquially and we're using it the way that it's used in the episode. Mm -hmm. Like we've been told the worship of the prophets is the predominant religion. Anything that is not that or specifically antithetical to that, like worshiping the, uh, the Pa race, is the cult by definition right. here. So we're, we're going with that uh, as far as the episode goes. But yeah, we, we, whenever you say that word, you actually have to take a step back and say, well, wait, does cult mean what I think it means? And then the other big question here always is, does the cult leader really believe what they're selling or is it calculated manipulation. And the problem with both of those questions, what is a cult, what is not a cult, does the leader believe it or not, is how can you tell the difference? And that's what you just landed on, which is there is no objective standard to use to be able to say, well, this falls into one category and this falls into the other category. You're suddenly faced with a lot of gray area. And that gray area may have shifted more to one side or the other side, depending on history, depending on time, depending on popularity. But when it comes down to the core beliefs and those people who are in charge of or, or uh, sort of administering over that belief system, well, we're back to our same questions here. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. think that's where Gakat was really smart, bringing up uh, or challenging Kira on – I'm basically saying that, you know, the the books, the the histories, the texts, the scriptures were written by those who were victorious. Of course they would <laughs> yes. be. Of course of they course. would be. Because how can you have a devout congregation of worshipers if you aren't the victor for those worshipers? You build your entire faith mm -hmm. upon the history of your victories and therefore giving your followers agency to spread the word as gospel that our God is superior because our God and those who follow him have won the most. Yeah, yeah. I would ask if a cult leader, and again, cult is a very loaded word, you could sub that with religion or whatever belief system you want. If a leader tells you that their faith is real and that their intentions are honest, 
should you believe them? Now, if a cult leader tells you that they're only in it for personal gain, you might have a lot easier time believing them. But in both cases, you're just going by their word because you don't have an objective standard used to follow them. Now, you may have some experience, depending if that person who tells you they're only in it for personal gain, which they won't. But if you're going by experience, then they actually play that out. Okay, fine. But here's where we end up with this problem with Dukat. And you mentioned it in the last segment. We catch him praying. Mm-hmm. alone, mm-hmm. by himself in that room, presumably sincerely, but there is still an outcome that suits him as opposed to suiting the followers. So there could just be self-justification there about whatever it is that he wants. And Ducat says this because he, even if he genuinely is motivated by spiritual belief, he says at some point, I was simply walking the path they laid out for me, which is a very convenient way of justifying his past actions and literally anything he does now mm-hmm. and from now on. Well, I mean, let, let's take a look at Ducat's choice not to suicide himself at the end and Kira's mm-hmm. choice not to follow the path of forgiveness. They're the same track because you can't just pick and choose which parts of your faith you want to believe in. You either believe or you don't. That's what faith mm-hmm. is, right? Your, your yeah. faith, it's a trust fall. You're either going to trust fall all the way or you're going to use your back foot to catch you as you fall. So Dakot not taking the pill, he only believes the paw wraith up to a point. And if you only believe mm-hmm. your faith up to a point, you really don't believe it at all because you're either not pregnant or pregnant. <laughs> right, right. There's not a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I wonder then, could, could Ducat just simply justify that of himself? Well, the Pa Wraith wanted me to survive so I could carry on with the next thing in the physical plane while all my followers go to the non-corporeal plane. Yeah, but that's the slippery slope of saying, you know what, I really shouldn't have killed all those people, but in the name of the prophets, I did, so I'm justified. You know, it's the whole God wills it thing with the uh, the Knights Templar in, I don't know, every single version of the Knights Templar we've seen, and like in Kingdom of Heaven, God wills it. Does, Does he really, though, the God that forgives, that teaches you how to love, that teaches you how to turn the other cheek, he willed you to basically massacre entire waves of all of your enemies that's yeah that's what he willed are you are you, are well, you on this party line well uh, okay i, I yeah. thought this was a really strong scene uh, in the episode and that's fala and kira's argument about the uh, you know miracle baby uh she absolutely cannot will not believe what's going on here for good reason she knows what's going on but fala uses faith as his sole argument thereby negating kira's skepticism you know, which it kind of works because Kira has seen some miraculous stuff, like, as you just pointed out, a whole Dominion fleet disappear. Right? I mean, people, <laughs> so. please, you can't forget that scene in the end of Sacrifice of Angels. That's one of the yeah. most deus ex machina, i.e., like the, the god Ever. or whatever coming in to intervene yeah. on the behalf of the people, the characters in your story. That can't be discounted. Mm-hmm. It, it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's canonical. So, yeah, it is. <laughs> so it is. it's not like we're trying to invent something to like you know dispute this point of the argument. But when Fala said that, and Fala is the only one that actually swallowed the pill because he believed mm-hmm. so much. He actually had the most amount of courage in this entire equation because he never wavered from very yeah. the, the very beginning that we met his character to the very end. 
He followed his faith. How many of the characters in this episode can you say did that? Well, is it is courage the word though, or is it just complete and utter compliance with the faith, or complete and utter devotion to a bad idea? I mean, but whose bad idea? Is it a bad idea? Okay, well, uh, there you go. Right, that, that's <laughs> yeah. that's the internal, like, or that's the the, the uh, eternal challenge, eternal. Uh, challenge of this argument. Why is it a bad idea and to whom? Well, look, I, I would come back to this other little dialogue exchange that I wrote down that I think is a great way to encapsulate this, and I'll give my spin on it too. Fala tries to play this down with Kira a little bit. It says, you believe the prophets are the true gods of Bejor. I believe the Pa wraiths are. Let's just leave it at that. And she says, there's just one thing. We can't both be right. I'm over here waving my hands wildly at the TV saying, Kira, 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 you could both be wrong. You need to entertain that thought because you could. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Someone really needs to repair Ampachnor's attitude control thrusters. Those poor people are still going to be upside down the next time we go there. Well, John, we have reached the end of this episode, and in traditional Mission Log fashion, we are going to establish this covenant with our listeners to talk about the end of covenants. And first, we're going to take a look at the aspect of if this episode holds up, does it withstand the test of time? And then we're going into, obviously, what is probably going to be a very interesting segment to talk about, and that is the morals, meanings, and messages. So let us create this covenant with our listeners let us give them our honest thoughts and opinions, and I would love to hear how you feel about this episode if it holds up for you. I, you know what, uh, this is why I love doing Mission Log, because we get to have a, uh, uh, a robust discussion and then bring it all home. And then, then when we're done at the end of this segment, we just, like, our job is over. We just hand it, hand it over to the audience and say, here, here's what we did. Now you go. Uh, but this is what we got out of it. And um, to sum it up, I, I feel like this is one of those episodes that obviously generated a lot of discussion between me and you. I feel like there's more to go here, and there's certainly more to come from our audience. But even though there was great discussion, I still have to take a step back and ask, well, does it work as an episode? Does it work as a slice of TV entertainment? Does it work as something that uh, really spoke to me? What's what's at heart here? You know, and I have to say that as good as the conversation has been and will be with our listeners, I'm slightly disappointed by this episode because I want to love it in every possible way. Because I feel like this is an episode that should hit every high mark for me. You've got Mark Alimo chewing scenery as Goldicott. You've got creepy cult discussion going on. You've got arguments about faith. But I also feel like it never really went there as an episode. The story here is about Goldicott doing something reprehensible and then manipulating his way out of it, which is fun. And which is something that we definitely expect. But the circumstances around that could have been anything. Now, I, I, and this brings me to a place where I'm not sure, again, for all the talk about DS9 really dealing with faith, 
that it's actually doing that. In an episode like this, faith is a backdrop for another story. But there's very little examination of the psychology at play. Again, this episode is fun. It's creepy. We love to hate the bad guy. There are twists. So is it entertaining? Yes. Does this really enlighten me about what DS9 is if I were to show it to someone? Does it really speak to understanding Star Trek's examination of humanity? I don't think I can really affirm those last two. So it's another one of those that holds up because the performances are good, but I can't say it holds up in really driving the DS9 narrative. What am I supposed to get from this? Well, I guess we'll have to find that out when we look at the morals, meanings, and messages. Uh, But I'm very much on the fence here about whether or not this episode, as an episode, works in totality. How about you? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that um, before I get into into my response, wouldn't have been really interesting if Dakot actually did take the suicide pill to prove to Kira that he was indeed sincere about his faith. Oof. What would that have done to her? Yeah. Oh. Like, call my bluff uh-huh. to you? Uh-huh. Because I have just showed you how devout I am. Can you say the same? Yeah. yeah. That would have been the ultimate victory for Dukat. Sadly, we would have lost Mark Alimo, mm-hmm. but it would have really given Kira something to haunt her when it came to... What does my faith really mean to me? And that's kind of like where I landed with this episode. So I actually really do think this episode holds mm. up, but not for the reasons that we usually associate with when we review a Deep Space Nine episode that we believe have withstood the test of time. We said this before, and we'll probably say this until the end of the rest of the 16 episodes <laughs> that we're going to cover. They're well-produced. Yep. Yes. They're well-acted. Yes. They're well-written, yes. There are elements that are amazing, yes, from the art direction to the way it's directed. All of those production elements are always at the very forefront of the quality that is Deep Space Nine. I can respect that. Mm -hmm. That's what I have learned to to come to, to know about this series. But that being said, I think this episode withstands the test of time because the central theme of this episode has been debated for centuries Mm -hmm. The debate of faith, what it is, what it isn't, those who defend faith, and those who question it. And it stands fair to say that because we are, in fact, discussing the merits of this debate in the 21st century about 24th century beliefs, Mm -hmm. it's logical to conclude that the dynamic of this argument regarding faith will continue into the far future because it is, in fact, unanswerable. And that's why I find compelling about this episode, because you and I are debating Mm -hmm. whether or not the people in this episode, these characters in this episode, believe or not, defend their faith, why? You know, believe a certain system because. That will never change. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's still relative as it was in 1998 as it is to now, because we still believe that we still believe that people believe, and we still question why people believe. And people that believe will always say, because, because this is the faith, mm-hmm. because this is, you just have to surrender yourself to this omnipresent power that will sustain you, that will inspire you. It can't be proven. It can't be disproven. So that will never end. 
And I think that it's great that we can talk about it in today's context from an episode that was 20-something years ago. So, uh, okay, that, that's interesting. And, and I agree with you that, kind of like I said, the, I, I feel like faith was there as the backdrop. I just wonder, did DS9 and this, particular imp- this episode in particular really hone in on that? We were talking offline, and I, I apologize to our listeners for referring to conversations that Norman and I had offline. Our Patreon listeners are privy to the whole thing. Uh, but I do want people to hear this part of it, which is that sometimes, to me, I think Star Trek can do a really good job of just reflecting a story from the popular culture or reflecting a story that is socially relevant and not necessarily doing a deep dive into the the uh, whys or wherefores of those characters and really give us like a moral stance on it, that's okay. Sometimes they leave us hanging and leave uh, those questions there for us to figure out. I think this episode, for me at least, is in this weird sort of position on the fence of reflecting something that was very real world when this episode came out. And as you say, it is perennially a, uh, a story that we hear about uh, since the beginning of, of organized religion of any sort. You know, there are offshoots, there are factions, there are quote unquote cults that will draw the ire of the larger religions that will create these tensions uh, within groups of faiths or different faith believers. So to me, this episode, it kind of, it shows it, but it doesn't really examine it in the deeper way that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. That said, you, you might have made me appreciate this a little bit more only because at least it's out there. And at least it is one of these things where Star Trek can take a very big idea and say we're going to play it out in a dramatic way and then kind of dump it on you to figure out <laughs> the rest of it. I mean, they tried to get there in some mm-hmm. moments where Kira, you know, between uh, Kira and the painter, um, and, you know, she she really kind of like let him have it with some really just kind of like snide and very hypocritical remarks, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, even between her and Fala, uh, because, you know, this whole like, I'm not trying to convince anyone of my faith, you know, or <laughs> or something to that effect, you yeah. know, I'm like, come on, really? I mean, you know, I, I guess you have to write it for her character, but... Essentially, this is a uh, Kira was used as the allegory of those who are trying to push their religion to those who want to listen to it. And if people don't want to listen to it, she's going to disparage you about it. Even right? in the best of possible circumstances, anytime there are people of different faith backgrounds, faith or non faith backgrounds, having a discussion about these topics, there is the the almost implied presumption that the other person is wrong in some way. And and, well, and you can how could how could my God exactly be wrong? and you you can keep it as civilized and dispassionate as possible, but there is always going to be that implication no matter what, and there's not really a good way around it. <laughs> no, so let, which is why it is uh, why it will, will always be a conversation yeah. that we will always have. So uh, talk to me then about what you got out of this episode in terms of morals, meanings, messages. Well, I mean, it's an episode clearly about faith. Um, And in my opinion, that's not—it's an episode about faith, but not necessarily about, like you said, deep diving into studying faith. Mm -hmm. What I landed in this final analysis of mine was, who decides what faith is? Mm -hmm. So what is the truth behind what is so devoutly revered by so many who who willfully accept that which uh, their said faith provides? Are there any answers? 
not according to this episode, because almost every reference to why the prophets behave in such a, a dissociated manner towards who they worship, like um, as Descott was saying, where were your prophets when we occupied you? Mm-hmm. What did they do for mm-hmm. you? There was no answer to that. So what is faith? So the prophets work in strange and mysterious ways <laughs> is the answer or the, uh, the gods that you believe in work in strange and mysterious ways. That's the answer. I do not want to insult anyone out there that are faith-based, very devout faith-based people. I am simply presenting the argument and the responses that he was seen historically over time, right? So the, the divine works in strange and mysterious ways. I was Catholic for many years. That was the belief system and the response that I had. But let's take a look at what Dukat is saying from a, and Kira is saying from a purely mathematical analysis, again, the whole on paper thing, because when you look at it on black and white paper with black and white writing and taking away the emotional context of it, it's very interesting to see. So if we look at both of their arguments in this way, what they are both saying about their respective faiths are thus, their gods have a plan. They work in strange and mysterious ways. And all will be revealed when the time is right. So, in this final analysis, what makes the prophets, quote-unquote, good? And what makes the paw wraiths, quote-unquote, evil? If you give the paw wraiths a more, say, enigmatic title like The Eternals Mm. and renamed the cult into The True Believers, then the idealism between these two belief systems becomes less polarizing as the equation now is debated out between the prophets versus the eternals, Mm. the emissary versus the chosen, those who worship the prophets versus the true believers. It's not so polarizing now when you market it and spin it a different way. So to put my interpretation of this episode in its most simplest terms, for me, there are no morals, meanings, or messages because to do so means there has to be a linear cause and effect to come to these conclusions. Narratives that explore the depths of faith are always obscured by the one all-encompassing response that is at the very heart of the eternal debate about faith. There is a plan. (laughs) And I respect that it's good enough for those who believe that, but for me, it's the most obvious deflection to the circular logic of this discussion and that there will never be an answer to this debate about belief because no one has the ability to prove or disprove its existence. There will only ever be the devout who will defend this ever elusive question. That's how I came away with it. But what about, well, I, you know, that's such an interesting way to put it because then that sort of ensures that ongoing adherence to the quote unquote faith, because there is not an answer. There is not a way to get to that end game until, well, you know, you're unable to answer it. So uh, my my question about this episode that is about faith is still, did we really go there in the examination of faith? Because I feel like there were scenes or ideas that were untapped. Um, was the questioning of Ducat's motivations sufficient? Kira questioned it. She brought up all the good objections to what he was doing, then we're thrown that curveball with the scene of him praying alone. Then we sort of get to this end where we get to say, well, she thinks he believes it. Odo says, well, 
it's still all self-serving no matter what. So I, but I, I wonder if it, we got enough out of that. It was interesting stuff, to be sure. Was there any point that Kira had a crisis of faith? And Norman, you said it in, in such a great way. What if Ducat took the pill? What would it take to actually have Kira examine her faith and examine her adherence to her beliefs versus the beliefs of others? Did the other members of the Parith cult truly examine what got them there or what was going to happen next? No, no, and no. <laughs> so the story plays out, but I don't know who among them learned anything from it, really. So uh, what we do see is, you know, we, we saw the tragedy of following a charismatic religious leader. A as silly as it might be to accept Dukat in that position, in many ways it's still perfect, <laughs> but that was already a given. Following a cult will pretty much always lead to problems, and we're all susceptible. And that's what's really interesting when we tell stories like this one there, but for the grace of God go I. Okay, but which God? Are you sure you got that one right? Because all these people on opposing teams think that they do too. This episode may be anti-cult, but that's a pretty easy position to take. A far more interesting conversation to have is how you can tell if something is a cult, how people get taken in, and if there's a way out. Tragically, for many people, there isn't, and it's a perfectly human response that a guy like Fala who can't reconcile reality with his beliefs, ends in a tragic way. At the end of the day, faith can be used as a shield to bend one's reality to fit a predetermined narrative. Fala does it over and over again, and it leads him to his demise. And what a waste! And I hope someone like Kira, just because she has, what, she, she has the good kind of faith, can take a step back to see if she does the same thing. It's a good thing that they left Kira with some ambiguity at the end. Follow's final words should be scary, however they are parsed. Most damning of all, the will of the prophets, or the paw rates, or God, always seems to line up with what the person interpreting it already wants. It becomes a very convenient and self-serving relationship no matter how hard someone prays for an answer. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log... It's only a paper moon. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Say what you like about the parades in this episode. At least we weren't doing the Carabare stare across the promenade.
and transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.